Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected and offering you a bit of peace and quiet amidst the madness with their noise-cancelling headphones, a pair of which, by the way, you can still win. Just keep listening to find out how. Okay, this week, my guest is the legendary DJ Trevor Nelson. Trevor is obviously a household name when it comes to R&B and soul music, a firm favourite at BBC Radio for over 25 years. What you might not know about him is he's also a massive sports fan, passionate about golf and Chelsea Football Club. He also knows the odd thing or two about Formula One. Now, we talk on this podcast about his iconic show, The Lick. Remember that? On MTV. In fact, it remains MTV's most popular show of all time. He tells me about his encounters with Lewis Hamilton, including the time he was supposed to DJ at Lewis's birthday party. Find out why he couldn't. And he shares his views on Black Lives Matter, the first time he's spoken publicly about the movement. His thoughts are fascinating. Now, I have to say, of the many podcasts I've done over the last two years, this, with Trevor, is right up there with my favourites. In fact, he could well be standing on the top step of the podium for me. I think over the next hour, you'll hear why. Here he is, Trevor Nelson on In The Pink. Okay, so... yeah. Trevor Nelson. Indeedy, naturally. How bloody lovely is it to see your face again? Uh, it's nice to see you. Yeah. I, only see you on, I only see you on telly these days. Shut up. Yeah, I only see you on telly. I always go, I know her. I used to work with her. Yeah, talking of which, uh. that was 2009. Now, for those listening, Trevor and I did a show together, NFL show together, way back in 09. We just, yeah. it was a lifetime ago. It was good fun, wasn't it? Oh, I, I'm going to put this out there now, okay? Natalie Pinkham has always been my... I mean, I'm not just saying this. Anyone who asks me, they say, who's the favourite person you've ever worked with? I say Natalie Pinkham. I had the best time. Oh. I looked forward to our little Channel 5 show every single week, only because of you. Oh, and, I, I mean, I love the NFL. You know, I was a consultant for the NFL, which no one in the world believes. 
right? But I was. That's a very grown up role. Yeah, it was a grown up role. I was a consultant for the NFL for a little while. While we're trying to get American football at, um, you know, in the UK, real games played. So, you know, Alistair Kirkwood, lovely guy. He yeah. runs NFL UK, soul fan, bit of a soul boy. And he contacted me. Anyway, so when this show came up, and we, they threw us together, we, we were both like, <laughs> the bearers, <laughs> you know. The bearers. The bearers, I remember that. And we just, had, we just had a laugh. It was great fun. You're tremendous. That's oh. why I'm doing a podcast. I don't do many podcasts. Oh, well, I'm honoured. I'm honoured. Yeah, good but man. It's fair to say, though, that radio is really your first love, and it's something that you've done for, like, what, 25 years? Um, next month will be my 30th year as a legal broadcaster. Oh, yes, because you were illegal before that, weren't you? At Kiss. I was illegal before that, but Kiss got a licence in 1990, September 1990. We went on air, and it was revolutionary. The first dance station that's got, um, that had a licence, and it was London-wide, not national, but London-wide, and it changed dance music in this country forever because labels started popping up, feeling that they had actually a station. They could sign acts and feed them to a station that would play them 24-7, and it was, it was great. So 30-year veteran next, next, next month, yes. Amazing. Did you feel or know at the time that you were part of something very special in that moment? A hundred percent. <laughs> I mean, a thousand, yeah, a thousand percent. Because, you know, um, I, 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 all I was was a record collector. I was one of these kids that I, I don't know if you remember vinyl much, Natalie, when it was around uh, back in the day. But um, I used to do a basic job, you know, and all my money went on record. I was obsessed with records, vinyl, 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 and um, it was expensive. It was American imports. It was. So I would spend like up to £100 a week on, on, on records in the 80s, early 80s. £100 a week is a lot now. It was a lot. It was all my money then, right? Um, and when I got my first credit card, vroom, maxed it out. Remember having a, having a, was it, what was it, a Visa and then, what was the, what was the opposite to Visa? I had both of them, I can't, Access, Access, something like that, I don't know. Both of them were maxed out on my mantelpiece. Snip, 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 paying them off <laughs> for two years. And I was addicted. So Kiss as a Pirate was a place where hobby DJs like me got a voice. And then all of a sudden we got a, we got a license. And I was like, oh, I can turn this vast record collection into something. And that was it. Okay, so big, big moment for you. But did you recognize just how big it was in terms of the music scene? Yeah, I did. Because after three or four years on Kiss Pirate, we knew enough people who were trying to make music, who were, you know, we started to get to know record labels and they were, we're talking about, you know, would Prodigy be where they are to, today without Kiss playing their early stuff? Would so many artists, there was so Massive Attack. I had the, I remember having a world exclusive on Massive Attacks, Unfinished, you know what I mean? And it was like sitting in front of me, what is this? You know, I remember hearing, getting the first Mary J tune, but you know, you know, Arrested Development. And we were playing them to London and London was very responsive to us. It was very exciting. And we got in, all of a sudden I was getting sent records all the time. So I knew we weren't good. We weren't very good. Oh, come on. <laughs> we weren't great. As but there was just a massive appetite for it. That's what I'm saying. It was... Why, why hadn't that... Why hadn't that been catered for before? Earlier, Radio One and Capital Radio at the time were all powerful. Radio One was 
at the time was the old Batesy and Ben Boys and Dave Lee Travis and, and you know, no Ledmans. They were still running Radio 1 and someone would be running the playlist and the playlist was down to just a few people who weren't young or necessarily on the clubbing scene or out there or on the pulse. They were just doing what they thought Radio 1 listeners wanted. And Radio 1 wasn't targeted at young people. I think Radio 1 was family listening. So, you know, some exciting young artist coming through that's hot in a club is not going to be reflected on Radio 1's playlist. Um, so that, so Radio 1 actually became what Radio, Car Radio Caroline came around because what was being played wasn't what the kids wanted to hear. And then they became Radio 1 and then Radio 1 became like, like the estab total establishment and we had to have Pirate Radio to nudge Radio 1. I mean, Radio 1 stole so many DJs from Kiss, it's scary. I mean, they got me, they got um, Giles Peterson, um, Dave Pierce, Judge Jules. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and loads of producers. And we, it's massive influx. And that very, was your training ground. Yes. Very right. exciting place. Because then obviously you were at BBC and you know, you've been linked to uh, the BBC for forever. Yeah. You've ducked and dived and weaved your way through the BBC ranks. What, mm. what about it has been good for you and why have you worked for them? Um, when you get a chance to, if you, I was a special, I'm a specialist. I'm a soul boy at heart. I'm R&B. Everyone knows you know, me, R&B. It's sort of synonymous, you know, in this country. So when they, when there was an opportunity for me to join, I joined in 96, Radio 1. It was like really exciting. Pete Tong had been there for a few years. Um, you know, they had Tim Westwood doing hip hop for a couple of years. They got me, then they got Jules, they got Fabio and Groove Rider for drum and bass. They had it all covered and they wanted to clean out the old school. And we lost listeners. You know, the day I joined, Chris Evans was doing a breakfast show. He was wild. <laughs> he had TFI going on on a Friday night and he was doing a breakfast show. It was just a bit crazy. You know, Zoe Ball then joined and it was mad. You go into radio, one fat boy Slim's hanging about, someone else is hanging out. It was just like that. And um, I knew that my place was R&B and I thought, okay, I want everybody in the country to know what R&B is. I want an Oasis fan to like Usher. You know, that was my mission. And everybody was superstar DJs. Remember that term? Pete Tong and all these cronies, superstar DJs, you know, they were out there doing the beefer. And I thought, I need to get my foot in somewhere here. I need to, and broadcasting on radio at the time, there was no, we weren't filmed. No one knew what we looked like. It's just all about your voice and what you do. And it was pure, it was still pure. And for that reason, I think we're the last generation of that, you know, that era of pure radio DJ. Since then, it's been social media, and let's film our interview, let everything's filmed, everyone wants to get more out of what they do. You know, this, what we're doing now, for example, I can see your beautiful face, and, you know, I couldn't do, that could never happen 20 years ago. So, and we could just about barely do something like this. It'd Is be it, over a phone, wouldn't it? It'd be, we'd be on yeah, a phone line. Yeah. You know, crackly phone line. It's interesting though, because you, you call radio your safe place and I'm often intrigued as to why people assume you can crisscross between radio and TV, because I think they're very, very different disciplines. Yeah. And I think just because you're good on radio doesn't mean 
that it will translate on TV and okay. vice versa. Totally agree. I mean, you do and have done some great television, um, but I feel that, yeah, it's your voice. It's your mm. voice. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes, um, I don't know how you feel about certain people that, but, it, but it's almost as if you, if you get famous enough, you know, in the current broadcasting world, for whatever reason, whether it's a reality TV show or you're a very successful TV presenter, people just assume you can therefore have your own radio show. And I just don't, I don't know if, if that's right. Okay, I'm going to be controversial and be very yeah. careful what I say. <laughs> very okay. careful what I say. Very careful what I say. But um, I will say, yes, I 100% agree with you. Um, the only reason I did, I had no ambition on TV. I had no ambition to do TV. I still have no ambition to do TV. In fact, I think if I wanted to do more television, I could have easily done more television. Rubbish television, but I could have done more television. And the simple thing was, my radio broadcasting gave me the opportunity to do MTV. And MTV was only small, let's be honest. It was on Sky. You had a tiny amount of population had MTV when I joined. I joined MTV in 98. But it was because I was a specialist and that's why I wanted to do MTV. Because I, instead of being a VJ, you know, hey, I'm a VJ. Remember them days of, hey, I'm a VJ and I've got a funny, funky accent. And you know what? This is a new one from, now I saw, this is what killed me, Natalie. I was watching MTV because the Fugees were on and they were my band. They were my band, oh. right? I love the Fugees. <laughs> Me too. It just takes me back to studying. I just remember, like, just pu pushing aside my books and just dancing. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I, I loved it. No, of course you can. I was watching this this VJ interview the Fugees. Yeah. And oh. it, I remember exactly how it went. The interview went. I'm watching. I'm thinking. Okay. And bless her, she was just doing what an MTV VJ does. She says, "Praz, you 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 started the band, and Praz is like, yeah, well, you know." Wyclef's my cousin. I went to college with Lauren. And, you know, I just put the full G's together. Wyclef, you're the genius of the group, right? I remember every word she said, he went, oh, well, you know, Haitian Nation. And he's like, yeah, you know, you write, you produce, you da 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 And she went over to Lauren Hill, who, although a troubled soul, although a troubled soul, was a one-of-a-kind performer. Just unbelievably talented. She turned around and she went, I like your shoes. Ooh. Right? I love those shoes. Ooh. She didn't ask for anything of substance and continued. And I sat in my living room and I went, and I went, no, I, I went, because to me, it's Mary J, it's Lauren Hill, and then the rest, right? Around that time, Jill Scott's and all the rest of them. And I thought, if I ever get a chance, ever, I'm going to do a substantial show on MTV if ever I get the chance. Lo and behold, I got a phone call from MTV. I went up there, did some sort of audition, very suspiciously. I said, please don't call me a VJ. Um, that's one. They, when they said, you've got the show, I said, okay, can you not call me a VJ? Can I sit down? I, I'm a radio DJ, really. Um, I don't really want to look. I looked at myself. I hated myself on MTV. The first time I saw myself, I was like, oh. I said, who's going to teach me telly? They said, no one. I said, can you get the camera off me? So they started doing this sort of thing with me, right? While I was still talking, it worked. It worked. The show did great. And that's the only reason I did telly, because I wanted to, to push the music I loved so much on TV. 
The Lick was the longest running MTV show. I mean, it's like iconic. And I know you say it's niche, but it was the most popular. Like, I, I feel like everybody remembers mm. The Lick. Yeah, but it was, <laughs> it was, it took off. I mean, the videos at the time, let's be fair, <laughs> were very, you know, like Ghetto Fabulous, Hype Williams, one million pack dollar videos, girls with booties hanging out, you know, guys with gold jewelry and rap, rap was the thing. It was, it was fun. It was not to be taken seriously, those videos, but they were, I mean, iconic videos. You know, you think of so many, you know, Diddy videos, bad boy videos, and you know, so many videos. And the show went to 47 countries around the world, outside of North America. I yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it was way bigger than even I felt. It was bigger in other countries than it was in this country. So I remember getting off. Get, this is like pre-internet. This is pre-social media. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I got off the plane in Stockholm, and it was like everybody knew me because it was free. It was on. It was on their national television. I got off the pl- a plane in Dublin, and it was the same thing. It, you know, the Irish could see it for nothing. As part of it, you know, so it was in Africa, it was huge right now. I, I know, which then gave me opportunity, you know, people saying, you know, BBC, like, what do you want to do on telly? What do you want to, you know, and I, so I got some opportunities to make what were niche programs on BBC television. And then that's how I ended up doing the odd thing with you and other people. But I had no TV, I didn't want to be on television massively. I still, yeah, you know, sorry. The world continues to evolve and the new norm isn't fully clear yet. But what does remain constant is the core message from our friends at Bose. Stay calm, stay centred and stay connected. Communication is key in everything we do and goes a long way to nurturing both ourselves and our relationships with others. So continue to talk about what matters to you. And don't be afraid to block out unhelpful noise or indeed to embrace silence, because doing both can be great. Some of the ways we work will have changed forever. Embrace that. Make those new ways work for you. Shape the new norm to suit you. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. The thing is, it seems like you just have to be a specialist in order to be authentic and for the audience to take you seriously and really buy into it and that's obviously what's given your career longevity because you are seriously old now (laughs) yeah i've given you permission to say that i am i'm cracking on in fact i got my break on mtv when i joined mtv i think i was the oldest presenter when i joined it's just as well you only look 25 then isn't it you when i joined let me tell you when i joined davina mccall come on huh sorry what's that no, I need you to share with us why, you, why you're 57 and you could be 27. I mean, Jesus, look at <laughs> I don't. I have no idea. I'm not going to lie to you. I shaved my head, maybe. I've always shaved my head, which keeps me looking the same, right? <laughs> I mean, when I joined MTV, seriously, Davina McCall was just leaving. Russell Brown was there. Um, Sarah Cox had been doing a show there. Um, there were so many... Um, June Sarpong, Richard Blackwood. It was like Kelly Brook joined at one point. It was like a Cat Dealey was, was there while I was there. It was a bit like a who's who, Edith Bowman. We, we, we all did something on MTV at some point. I just, Zane Lowe, 
Zane Lowe joined around the same time as me, Eddie Temple Morris. I was, you know, I, MTV Bass started because of the success of the lyric. It was great. Now, like you said, going back to your point of, about reality TV stars doing stuff, I think there's no such thing as a TV presenter anymore. Do you remember when you used to put your television on and go, there's a new show and this person's the presenter, you know, and you've never seen that person before. You don't know, you know, and that was how it was. Now, everybody's got to bring something to the table. You've got to bring a fan base to television with you. So someone like Rylan, who does huge amounts on television. And when I first saw Rylan, he was on X Factor. And I was like, is he having a laugh? You know, that sort of thing. Now, I have my doubts about Rylan. And then Rylan joined Radio 2. I didn't, I didn't know too much about Rylan, you know what I mean? But I knew he was X Factor. And I heard he was joining Radio 2. We did a 24, Rylan did a 24-hour karaoke marathon for charity. And it, part of my show was in it, obviously, and he came in on my show. And I've got to tell you, incredibly bright, quick, really clever. I was impressed by him, to be honest. He's an everyman, you know what I mean? He does everything, let's be fair. But he, he is at the top of that pile, but there are several people way down there that I don't think should be on radio yeah. and are just there because they're names. You know what I mean? He is, he is like actually good at what he is. Yeah. I feel like he's very, I, I did one show with him once and I've just, he had a lovely aura about him. Mm, mm. Good energy. And yeah. look, uncannily like Olivia Giroud. <laughs> and, and many other biblical characters that I can name with that, with that grooming he's got going on and incredibly cool. But no, Ryland, Ryland has a place in this business, 100%, I think. But I think there are, I think we've fallen into this trap of you've got to bring something to the table. And so people, and I always thought my D, DJing and broadcasting was, to me, it was hello, grandmate. You know, you get to Radio 1, you, you work all your life to do it. It means a hell of a lot. And then you get to Radio 2 when you get to a certain age, you know, and it's the biggest station in, in Europe. And I'm honoured. Well, maybe. I don't know. I, in the world, yeah. Yeah, possibly. And I, I, they've given me four shows a week now. It's, wow. It's, it's, so I'm, but then I, I sometimes wonder, um, and I'm not talking about Radio 2 so much, but I, I'm sometimes I look at people popping up on radio stations everywhere who are names rather than broadcasters. Um, and if the, if the country has an appetite for that, then that's fine. And they seem to. They seem to. So it's a changing, you know, it's a changing landscape. So for you then, how have you stayed relevant or have you got an audience that have grown with you and stayed loyal to you and you're going on a journey together? I'm flipping Cliff Richard. <laughs> I said that to, no, I tell you what, I still, I still, I still DJ. I do a lot of old school parties. I mean, I, I think the last time I saw you at one of my gigs, I was doing a gig for you. you it wasn't my gig I wanted to talk about that actually. Yeah, and and um, it was for the kids. And it was um, amazing. You're to charity you, you're really involved in. But um, before we-, oh, well, we, we met, let's mention it now because I, I, listen, I'm so grateful for your time and energy that night. So it was called End the Silence and it was all about music and how music transforms lives and it was basically what we were doing is we were asking people to think about the one track from their childhood the mm. one song that takes them back to a moment and it's based on the idea that 
the, the charity that I work for, Hope and Homes for Children, these kids have never heard music. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've never had any kind of music in their life and they have, a, they have a childhood of silence. And the creepy thing is when you go into these orphanages, the kids don't even cry because they learn to stop crying because nobody comes when they do. So this was this whole idea about End the Silence. We did it at Abbey Road Studios. And you just, oh my God, brought the dance floor alive. Why, wasn't it? It was so good. (laughs) So lovely because what it did is it evoked a lot of emotion Mm. because a lot of people were then saying, oh, my one song is. Mm. And my song was Roy Orbison in Dreams because my dad used to sing it to me as a baby to get me to sleep. Um, And actually I want listeners of this podcast to let me know what theirs is because I think it really gets people thinking and when you hear that song and if I ever do it's rare because it's it's never really on the radio anymore but I start crying out of nowhere just this emotion floods over me and it's it's good it's positive emotion but it, it reminds me of my dad it reminds me of being a little girl feeling quite vulnerable and music just has that ability doesn't it my one is chestnut roasting on an open fire. My dad, my dad was a, a really dis- a disciplinarian. My dad, I was brought up in a very, put it this way, the word love wasn't mentioned that much in my house. No, it was, it was because he was, he was an immigrant. He came over, it was tough for him, my mum. From St. Lucia, he was a bus conductor. He was way better than that, you know what I mean? My mum was a childminder. We didn't have a lot, we grew up in Hackney. And it was this thing, you, you must have heard it over and over again recently about us having to work a bit harder and all the rest of it. And so we grew up in a house where there's a sense of duty. You know, my dad used to do something where he was like, son, ask me how much money I've got in my pocket right now. Anytime. And I go, dad, how much money you got in your pocket? You go, three pounds and 65 pence. He'll always know because that's what he's like. He said, you should always know. He was like that. He became a financial advisor. So, you know, everything, everything was a sense of duty. So my dad was quite a fearsome character. I was more scared of my dad than teachers, the police, anybody, right? But he, at Christmas, was different gravy. You know, he at Christmas, that's the day I loved my dad, you know. And my dad would be down at Christmas singing his Nat King Cole songs. And we didn't open presents until he put that song on. And, you know, I always well up when I hear that song, despite the difficult relationship I might have had with my dad all my life. You know what I mean? That, that song and, and music has that power. It's amazing. You know, I have a thing on my show on Radio 2 called Musical Youth, where I play a bit of Musical Youth. This generation rules the nation with version. And then you write in, Natalie, and you say, there, Trev, can I um, love the show? Blah, blah. Of course you've got to say love the show. And then you say sort of... <laughs> Can you please play Roy Orbison? Da, 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 and then you tell a little, it's not just about your parents, it's about your youth. It could be one about you raving in IB for or something, but you could, you could quite easily send that in. And, you know, it's just, that's why I do it. Because when you're young and you have no mortgage, no, no kids, no responsibility, no headaches, no schedules, when you just, music takes you back to those carefree times and it just, it's a power. The power. It really is. God bless me, no, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, You're making me well up. Yeah, yeah, well, it's true. It's true. You've got to have enthusiasm for music. You've got to really love it to stay in it this long. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I just, I don't think, I mean, I think 
you struggle to find anyone who doesn't love something about music. You know, there, yeah. there, there yeah. hasn't been touched by some music and mm -hmm. have a passion for it somewhere. But if you can make a job out of it, then wow, God, even wow. better. I've stolen a living, haven't I? <laughs> it's not a real job, is it? It's not a real job. I, I mean, only, yeah, go on. It's only a real job. The only time I... There are times when it... This is the problem with music. It's something I used to escape to. I didn't, I, you know, we didn't grow up with much, but I had my music. You know, I'd do any job. I could do any job as long as I had music playing. I ran a shoe shop. It was my first job official job after leaving college. I didn't go to uni. And can you believe this? I didn't go to uni because I didn't know one person who went to uni, one of my friends. And it was free in those days, <laughs> right? Because we didn't want to leave London. We were scared. We were like, I don't, you know, I, I weren't, I don't know. Everyone was get a trade, get a job, get a trade, get some income in, that sort of thing. So I had a part-time job in a shoe shop. And um, then when I left, I knew about shoes. So I became a manager of a boutique shoe shop in Bethnal Green. Yeah, boutique meant that there were three staff members. <laughs> Two during the week, three on Saturday. And um, it was called Panessi, Italian shop. And I had obviously my music on all day. And honestly, as mundane a job as that seemed, we didn't sell many shoes. As long as I had music on, I was great. Event, but the problem was at lunchtime sometimes, I would close the shop and go to the record shop <laughs> to buy some records. And I knew more about the records in the record store than the guy who ran it. So he eventually offered me a job importing music. Um, you know, going to Heathrow, picking up loads of vinyl and running around London selling it to all the record shops. And this is where I started learning about the record industry. So I started at the very, very bottom and then um, became an assistant manager in a record shop. And then, you know, just moved on a bit. Then started my own sound system, doing parties, getting a reputation in London for having music. And then I met Jazzy B from Soul to Soul. Oh. And that was a big moment. There you, go. there you go. And he was, he was a funky dread. He was like, Jazzy was, he hadn't made any music. He was just a DJ. And we had this really, I had this orange mini, I remember. I pulled up outside a club and I was supposed to be running that night. And he, his sound system, were doing a sound system for a fashion show in the same club on the night I was supposed to be there. I said, what's going on? And, and the guy who owned the club went, oh, double booking, double booking. Sorry, mate. I'm like, I've been doing this for three weeks. This is my week four. This is when I break even. This is when we start the night rolling. And I was really pissed off. And Jazzy calls me over. You mad out of Trevor? That was my name, Mad Hatter. I said, yeah. Who are you? Jazzy B, soul to soul. He's got this massively deep voice. <laughs> we hooked up, started doing some parties, and then one day he said, I want to make some music. And I thought, you can't play an instrument. And I heard keep on moving back to that global wow. bam. And I realized that dreams can come true if somebody really believes. And this guy was just from North London, same as me, you know what I mean? And he just went, boom, global. One, a year and a half later, he was flying me out to see him in concert in Hollywood. And I just was like, okay. <laughs> and I went to Hollywood and I'll never forget, I was in the queue at LAX airport because at the 
cut. It was so long to get through passport control. And in front of me was Terry Wogan. No. Never forgotten it. Ne- he was so... Terry Wogan was totally pissed off because it was hot. The queue, it took about an hour to get through. He obviously had to get somewhere. I've never forgotten it. Went to see the concert, came out, and, and at the after party, there was Mick Hucknall, who was huge at the time. Huge. Just hovering around as he does. You know, and I'm like, okay, this is the life. Um, and I, I went back to working in a, in a record shop after that and thought, I've got to knuckle down, mate. I've got to really knuckle down. And I, it, 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 he, he helped me focus my mind, I think, with his success. You know, but I, I just, I don't know, I just knuckled down and just worked really hard. It's the little office. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I've seen the MOBO at the back there. I've got loads of discs up here, girl. Look. Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. And um, Amy, Corinne, Brandy, Lauren, Destiny's Child, Mariah. These are Plan B. Yeah, I've got loads of these. That's what you get if you... I didn't sell any of those. It's just what they give you for playing them and giving them live sessions and stuff like that. There you go. Now, talking of live sessions, how yeah. impacted, I know this is a bit depressing, but how mm. impacted have you been by COVID? Because I know you've got your residency at Pasha. What, yeah. what, what's happening there? How kind of concerned are you for, for, for that, for the live music scene generally? I don't do Pasha anymore, and I need to change that because a lot of people think I still do it, but I don't do it anymore. Well, oh, right. Yeah. You did it for, like, 10 years. Yeah, over 10 years. But I... Um, I've got to be honest, Nat, I think I saw what the um, Chancellor did for this country, which I thought initially was fantastic, but completely admitted the entertainment industry initially. And a lot of people live hand to mouth in that business. You should know some. I know, lo- I know loads of people who did rely on the entertainment, hospitality, and stuff like that. And they, they're sort of people who... <laughs> They don't have the sort of records, that you, you know, financial records that you need in order to get the furlough cash and all that stuff. And they, they are on the floor. The uncertainty is absolutely killing them. You know, we know about theatres because theatres are established in this country for years and they've always been on the brink theatres, haven't they? But venues, live music venues, been closing every year. You know, I tour every year and I, I, like, there's a venue in Limit and Spa, I love it. It's beautiful. And it was taken over. It was shut down last year, taken over. It comes back, and now it's gone, probably gone again, you know? Hackney Empire, Jazz Cafe, these places in London that are iconic. Uh, crowdfunding to survive. It's, the landlords aren't letting go on the rent. They're not compromising. You know, they're being hardcore. And places, I think it's going to change forever. Um, some, sometimes people say, well, I bet that... In crisis like this, the best people survive. Fair enough. But unfortunately, they're the best people, but there are so many. It's like a spider, isn't it? For every best person, there's eight people that depend on that person for a living. You know, somebody was showing me, um, I saw on TV yesterday, uh, there was a massive warehouse of all this equipment where all big bands go to, 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 to um, experiment with their lighting shows. And, you know, there's 100 people work here. We haven't had anything for it since March and we don't know when next and it's a massive space with loads of equipment I'm worried 
And, you know, at my age, for example, it's all right for me to say I've done all the best gigs I've ever, I'm ever going to do. And I'm happy. I've done some great, I've had some great memories. And I'm, you know, I'm at the age I am, I can stop digging. I can just do radio and play golf and feed my fish and look back. But I look at my daughter, who's much younger, obviously, and it makes music and relies on that sort of living. And so many younger broadcasters and DJs and club owners. and Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. People who make graphics, who make, you know, there were loads and loads of people. And I don't know. You can't blame the government. It's just, it's just, just a, a, it's a terrible, surreal situation. Um, maybe through adversity, some beautiful music will be made. I mean, that's yeah. kind of hope, isn't it? That it's yeah. the, the creative juices. But okay. it's, you also worry that, that, that young people just can't afford to pursue their passion and pursue their dream of becoming an artist or whatever they want to do in the music industry? Well, I don't think so much there because the, the reliance isn't on performing live. You don't have to tread the boards anymore. Yeah. Okay. Um, young stand-up comedians might have a problem. Yeah, you, you know, people who, who need a crowd in front of them and need a response. Um, you know, music now is... It's done on a laptop a lot of the time. You know, a lot of people, music makers, are making it on laptops. In fact, they're in. It's fine for them in, in a certain way. You know, it's 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 the club owners. It's the the club scene was dying anyway. It's been dying. It's a bar culture now more than a club culture. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's no substitute, is there, for going to a live gig, going to a festival, all this. That, you know, that energy that you get from. Something that may never happen. Well, I mean, like, I'm hoping, obviously, we get back to that at some point, but it doesn't feel like any time soon because even like with sporting events, the testing process is going to have to be so rigorous mm. in order to get fans back to sport and to go back to live music venues. A lot of people will be put off forever. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think people, I don't, th I think, <laughs> you know, I'm a massive football fan, right? I don't think the, um, football's going to have a problem um, because football is so popular at the moment that there's a waiting list for season tickets in the Premier League. I've, you know, I'm a Chelsea season ticket holder over 20 years and I guarantee you the moment I let my season ticket go, it's gone and it's not going to come back until we get a bigger stadium. So that's not a problem. Other sporting events, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you, the sport you're involved in, Formula One, I thought it was okay without a crowd, considering, you know, because of the noise when the driver and the focus that the drivers have. You know, I've been to Silverstone and, yeah, I've been in the paddocks. Is it the paddocks? Yeah, the pits. Yeah. Paddock, yeah. It was with Lotus. I was with Lotus. I was with, I was with Lotus. Woo! And, well, that yeah. would have been a while ago then. I think Grosjean was driving for them then. Look at you. Yeah, and um, I had the old, the old headphones on, in the, you know, the noise reducing. My God, the noise, the energy. I, it was so thrilling. But I, I figured, I said to myself, the drivers can't hear the crowd. Surely not when they're driving. No, I think they get a bit of an energy off the crowd. Like if you talk to Lewis Hamilton, for example, at the British Grand Prix, he definitely gets um, a lot of energy from the crowd. And he often crowd surfs afterwards once he's won the yeah, race. Yeah. yeah. He didn't win last weekend, but there you go. I remember um, when Lewis had a mini. <laughs> when Lewis used to drive a mini. He took me on a track once when he was um, yeah before he was before he got Formula One. He was um, he was you know he was a black driver. I was doing my MTV show and I was doing another show for the BBC. And I, I met him twice actually, and um, he was he was like I knew he was going to be a superstar. Knew he was going to be a superstar, and you know he was he was quick, man. I I remember I was driving a Jag, and he was like, "What are you doing in that?" <laughs> and he had a mini, and I said, oh, "Can you tell me the way out of the track to, to you know better the motorway?" And he completely ripped me. <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah, I love it. But he, he was um, he's done incredible. Um, I think, yeah, he's done amazing. We share the same birthday. There you go. I'll give a little. January the 8th? 7th. 7th. Damn. I'll give you a little story. Um, so I, I met him a couple of times and I think we exchanged numbers. Yeah, we did exchange numbers. Yeah, I had quite a few numbers from actually. But, um, and I said, I hope you get a, a, a Formula One ride next season. I think I'm going to get one next season. I said, well, good luck and blah, 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 blah. And then I get a call, my office got a call. No, oh, that's my daughter. My office got a call and um, it was his dad. We've never spoken to his dad before. He says, hi, I'm Lewis's dad. I said, oh, all right. He said, I want to do a surprise 21st birthday for Lewis. I think it was his 21st. And I want you to DJ, can you DJ? And I said, well, yeah, you know, I might do, yeah, da -da 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 and all this stuff. So when is it? He goes to 7th of January. I said, that's my birthday. I promised the wife dinner. So I never did it. I never heard from his dad again. But I never did it. And it was just like, and we sort of lost contact. But he always said to me, you should come to a Formula One race. I said, I'd love to come to Monaco. I never did it. I was so busy. I was gutted. Oh my God, you definitely should. Gutted. But one, thing that, the one thing that Lewis is, I mean, hugely passionate about, and he's got behind um, various causes over the years, but this one has really kind of, inspired him, motivated him, is the Black Lives Matter movement. And he's really kind of helped us in Formula One learn, understand, educate, evolve. 
I mean, would you believe that we are 88% male, 91% white? Yes. In the Pink and Bows want to support you in whatever way we can during these uncertain and constantly evolving times. So we're giving away more noise-cancelling headphones to bring some added calm to your life. To win the headphones, just tag in the three friends you're most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted. Always include the hashtag Bose, and those headphones could be yours. Good luck and stay connected. But something else that I saw recently was documentary The Real Thing Story. Yes. And you and you did um, you like, yeah. On it. yeah yeah and for anyone who hasn't seen it it's all about the song you to me are everything okay I really can't sing you should you take can't. that it <laughs> <laughs> was the first, first black band to get a number one hit they're out of Liverpool everyone mm-hmm. thought they were American right mm-hmm. and one thing and this was only what back in the late seventies. One thing you said on that documentary was that you used to like punch the air if you ever saw a black person on television mm-hmm. because it just didn't happen. Uh, is that is that really true? You just didn't ever see uh, black people on yeah, screen. I can, I can tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I can tell you that it's very difficult. I talked to a lot of my white friends about this and in this last um, few months, a lot's gone on and a lot of white colleagues or friends of mine, mainly colleagues to be fair, love talking to me because they're not afraid to, be, to make a mistake talking to me or feel people are walking on hot coals right now. They don't want to say the wrong thing and it's counterproductive. We need to talk a lot more. And um, yeah, it was like that. My mum would be on the phone to, to a, a friend going, Hey, put, put, put ITV on. There's a black person on ITV. <laughs> Honestly, it was like that. It seriously, was like that. We were, um, yeah, it's crazy. But that's how it was. And you're not to think that. You know, I don't look at you and say, didn't you realise, Natalie? Of course you're not going to think that. You know, we, we grew up, I grew up watching, you know, what, who's my first crush on telly? Probably. Probably looking at someone on the, on the Avengers or someone. Probably someone like Purdy or something. You know what I mean? When you're a little kid, you are indoctrinated to see beauty as it is on telly. You know, Blondie, when we were at school, none of us knew she was in her 30s, but we're all like 15, all oh, Blondie, all, you know. But, you know, it's just the way it was. Um, I, I've got to tell you, it's, it's, it's been interesting the last few months, but it's also been, it's been exhausting been really really exhausting things you take for granted so such a big deal to us as black people you know Lenny Henry was about the only person who ever cut through on telly I can tell you the bunch Charlie Williams was a comedian from Yorkshire or somewhere Kenny Lynch was a, a old school Jimmy Tarbucks makes these like ah that's how far back we're going Love Thy Neighbour was a very racist comedy that was on telly the guy who's in um EastEnders, Patrick, he was in Love Down Neighbour when he was young and it was him bickering with a white neighbour, their two families bickering. The women were always great, the wives were great, but it was the husbands that were bickering. And they used, you know, racist terms. And Alf Garnet, you know, that was probably the most racist programme on television. 
and it was opening. And then you had comedians constantly taking the Mickey out of you know, you know Jim Davison, Chalky, and doing all these. And it was all everyone laughing, and it was fine. And Bernard Manning used to be on telly, and you know, you know, you're you're used to this. You get indoctrinated by seeing this. So when you see someone who's just not playing a stereotype role. Although every, just about every black person on telly had to at the time. When I saw Sidney Poitier in a movie with dignity, you know, proper dignity, and he was a star and he overcame bigotry and he kept, yeah, I was like, wow, he's my hero. You know, so it was, it was a big deal and it wouldn't have been a big deal to many people apart from black people because we, we were represented one way and one way only. So when people say to me always, oh, you've got a career, your career is, you've had a great career, Trevor. And you're like, and they go, how did you plan it? I didn't plan shit. <laughs> I, didn't plan, I didn't expect to be on radio. One, are you crazy? My aspiration was get a job, have a, have, have a nice wife, be able to buy a house and go on holiday once a year. That was my aspiration. End of. Why? Because you're black. You didn't yeah. think you would be able to have a career like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had these conversations now with, I had a private chat with the managing director of the BBC and I, I love him for it, Bob. And I, we have this sort of conversation, you know, people want, you know, people would love me to be, there are certain activists who would love me to be on social media, banging a drum. I'm too old for that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking to you unless I can see your eyes. This is too important. Do you get what I mean? I'm not going to write something to make myself feel good and get a few likes. I want to look you in the eye and talk to you or speak to you and talk to you about race. I'm not afraid to talk about race. And I'm, I'm not one of these, I understand it from both sides and that not many people want to want to take that stance. You know, you're an activist or you're, you're for or you're against, you know what I mean? Lewis is in a really, really incredible position and what he's doing, I know what he's doing. I mean, of all the sports in the world, <laughs> that is the most privileged for me. One of the most privileged, right? You can't get into that sport. His story is fantastic. Anyway, there should be a movie down the line about him. Um, he's forcing the agenda. He's, he's really, it must be rocking the boat and upsetting a few people up there, I'm sure. But you know what? He's, he's the world champion. If anyone can, he can. So good on him, you know, good on him. Tell me why the last few weeks have been exhausting. As a black man kind of dipping um, his in, watching it, observing it, but wanting something to happen. Yeah. Because, I'm, because I'm constantly talking to other broadcasters and they look at me as a senior, you know, black broadcasters. I'm talking to producers. I'm talking to white producers who do black shows, you know, because it's not all, it's not, you know, um, I'm talking to anyone who, I'm not talking to the press. I'm not, to, I, this is the first time I'm talking to anyone publicly about Black Lives Matter, because that is you, Natalie. But, um, you know, I am, I think it's been exhausting for everybody. I think the saturation on television sometimes is quite, quite patronizing. Just to me, I find it quite patronizing sometimes. I think, you know, it's all right to put, I felt it was quite organic at the beginning. Uh, I also understand that if you don't have anyone of color that you know personally, it's very, very difficult to comment or know what it's like or understand you know you know what i mean it's so difficult for people to get it so it's people will say forget the softly softly we gotta bash them over the head just you know there's ways 
There's ways. I think it's been a good thing. The George Floyd thing was disgraceful. The woman in the park, in, in, in Central Park, when the guy said you, the dog should be on a lead, was pretty much a, a, a real indication of what you're up against. Mm. He had every right to say what he said, and she gets on the phone and says to the police, there's a black man threatening me. Good thing he filmed it. Because he wasn't threatening her. He said, ma'am, you should have your dog on a lead. Pure and simple. And she's someone who has got the power to employ people. And she probably subconsciously is racist. So, you know, I've always been brought up by my parents. My parents have never, ever, ever given this. I may have said there wasn't a lot of love and, you know, you know in the household. And I don't mean there wasn't love. My parents loved me. I mean, you know, but they, it was a sense of duty getting through the day you know, making ends meet, that kind of thing, which was instilled in me. But they never, ever, ever said to me anything racist. They never, they, they suffered racism, but they never transmitted it to me. Do you know what I mean? They always had friends, they judge people on the person. And thankfully, I'd like to think I've done the same thing in my life. And that's all we need in this world. That is the only criteria, an idiot's an idiot, a good person's a good person. I could swear and I'm tempted, but I won't. You know what I mean? But you know what I mean? And it's no different to, I, you know, I, I'm, so, I'm so sure of myself in this that I don't need to look at Twitter. I don't need to look on social media. I don't need to look at anything to tell me what I am, who I am, how I should act, who I should speak to, who I should befriend, who I should mix with, who I should date, who I should anything. I don't need to be told. I educated myself on the past, the black history. I watched Roots. That's, that's what did it. I was 10 years old. Roots came on telly. I cried. My whole family cried. I went to school angry the next day. Really angry. Because Roots was the first I'd really heard about slavery properly. We weren't taught it at school. So then I realized where I came from. And it, I felt a sense of massive displacement, massive not knowing. Because I used to grow up thinking, why, why am I here? What is I don't get it. I, what's, what's going on? But, you know, it's cold and I'm everyone that's my, I didn't get it as a kid, you know what I mean? My, you look different to the other kids. Well, yeah, but my, I don't think... Black community. I was part of a black community, which made me feel, you know, Hackney was a mixed community. Our, our road was the United Nations. We had Irish, Turkish, Africa. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful community. Yeah, it was so much fun. It was fun. I loved my road. I loved the way I was brought up. I loved Hackney in the, in, in the old days. And, um, but when you get to the sort of critical age of 10, 11, 12, teenage, you start noticing different things, you know? And I started reading. And I started reading stuff I wasn't taught at school. I started reading autobiographies. I read about a guy called Steve Biko, then Nelson Mandela. And then, you know, and I, I, I kind of educated myself on it. And that's... And so I realised injustices and the, the way we've got to go. We've got a long, 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 long way to go. This is no easy fix. But at the same time, I realise I'm in a country that is a white country and I'm in a minority. So you look at yourself that way and you're the underdog from the get-go. So in order to get somewhere, you just have to power through and work extra hard. But the truth is, I think I've got everywhere in life because of my personality. And I think that is a massive, I'm not an angry man. You know, I'm a, I'm a, you cross me, you just won't hear from me again. 
I'm not going to confront you. I ain't got the energy for that. There's about 30 other million that could upset me. What am I going to do? Every time someone upsets me, confront them. I'll confront people if I need to, the people that matter, the people that really, really matter, you know, you know, put them to us. But I won't do it publicly because I think there's too much of that public shaming. I think some people deserve it, but not everybody. You've got to pick your fights. You know, you've got to pick your fights because then you just become a fighter all the time. So were you subjected, have you been, are you subjected to racism through your career? Um, I'm lucky because I'm, it's black music and I'm black. So, you know, if you're, you're gonna, if you're, yeah, I mean, I think there were instances, yes, but more not me directly. It's more what I represent. You know what I mean? Mm. The music I represent from... Particularly, we've mentioned somewhere I used to work. I, I, I don't want to put it out there. I said used to work and someone at the very top was... It just upset me a little bit, you know. But I, I, for, the, for, the, for, the, for this music's sake and for getting the artists on and for getting that music out there, I had a mission. That was my mission. And if I, you know, didn't do that show, I thought that show was very important. Yeah. To, to my, I've, I, I've done a before you I did a, a zoom chat for a guy who's writing a book on black entrepreneurship and he and his wife his wife works at JP Morgan regular black couple lovely lovely young people who are just so positive and I told them stuff that I've never told anyone you know like never about my time at MTV EMI and places like that and how I was the only guy around, you know, at one point at EMI and there were only a few of us at MTV and stuff. But my mission is that when I walk out the door that you, you say, do you know what? I'd hire another one of him yesterday. I'd hire that, you know, and I think it's, do you know what I mean? That's my thing. Very you positive. Know? Yeah. You've got a, he said, you're a trailblazer. I said, no, I don't, I don't see myself as that, but I know I am. <laughs> be, just I think, yeah. I think, I think anyone listening to this will, and you are because, that's why all those producers over the last few weeks have called you. They're yeah. looking for answers and they no. know that you can probably give them those I can answers. Try. I can try, but you know what? If you, you, touching back on, I know we've gone on this subject and I'm happy, I knew we would, and, I'm, and, I, and I actually probably want to talk about it anyway. I knew from being on Radio 1 and existing on Radio 1, it will help every single wannabe broadcaster, you know. Oh my God. I could do that. Do you know what I mean? That's more important to me than anything, the legacy. I might be, you know, I might, I might have a checkered family history or a checkered this. I might not be the best dad in the world. I might not be this. But the one thing in, in the world I know that I was good at was doing, doing, doing black music radio on a mainstream station and trying to sell my culture to the nation. Do you know what I mean? And help artists sell records and and pick, let people enjoy music. And I, I hope loads of people have bought albums because they heard me play it or enjoy an artist. And it's really important that these youngsters come through and go, he did that, he did that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. We, I call it the Obama effect, and I'm not putting myself on the pedestal like him, but you know what I mean? When he became president of the United States, I broke down in tears. I cried like a baby. I never thought in my lifetime, are you, I mean, it, you didn't have to be black to feel emotional about um, Obama getting there. You thought the world, wow, wow, I've never guessed in America, 
Because if you've been to America, you know, the only color they like is green. They love green. That's their favorite color. Above all else, money, right? And, it, and, you know, so I see this black man become president of the United States. And I'm like, I just couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And I was so thrilled. And I, and I immediately said to people, don't think for one moment he's going to walk into every black neighborhood sprinkling money. He's not going to do that. His job is done. His job is to get there. His job is getting there. That was his job getting there because it, it gives you hope, you know what I mean, that, that anything is possible. And, and, that and, was your, and that was your job to follow and, and, and overachieve and do whatever you can. Our jobs. It's, it's, it's all our jobs, you know. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and I'm, you know, right now, it's a, good, it's, a, it's a good time to be, a better time to be in, not a, good, a better time to be in the industry than it was before because there are some doors opening. Although I would say, Every broadcaster and everybody on, has to feel that they're on merits. Yeah. It's really important. It's really important, you know, that you feel you're there on merit because there's nothing worse than feeling you're there as a token gesture. That is not great, you know. Very true. I don't even know if you'll remember this, but um, you and I were meeting to have a, a production chat ahead of one of the NFL shows. This is, you know, 11 years ago. And um, you said, where should we meet? And I said, Shoreditch House, because I knew it was near you. And, and you were like, oh, yeah, okay. And when we w walked into Shoreditch House, do you know what I'm going to say? I can't remember, but I know we went to Shoreditch House. You sort of slightly rolled your eyes. And I went, what's the matter? And you went, just look around, Pinks. Do you see another black person in this whole place? And I was like, shit, no. What? No. And you went, of course you didn't, because you're white. But imagine if you'd walked into a place with me on one of my suggestions, and you were the only white person there, you would notice. And I was... Wow. 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 It was a moment for me. I've never forgotten that. Wow. Did I say that? Yeah. I was comfortable with you then. Yeah. Really comfortable to have said that to you. That's... that's I was... I mean... It's just because I can doesn't mean I do. And it's not, and honestly, it, it was on my doorstep. I was a member. I think I was a member as well. Wasn't I? I don't know. I don't know if I was a member. No, I wasn't yet. I wasn't a member. But I don't see myself as better than anyone. But it's odd, isn't it? That's, that's my life in a nutshell there. Do you know what you did in that moment is you started a process for me because, you know, and I'm still, I'm still learning, but I've never forgotten that moment. And I thought, yeah, do you know what? I have to walk a mile in another man's shoes in order to, before I can even begin to understand. I would never have said that unless I was comfortable saying that. I'm telling you now, it, was, it wasn't a thing for me because it's been, you know, that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. I have membership of a lot of places that I don't use. Yeah. Um, complimentary memberships or something, but I, I, I don't. You know, I've, I was up in. What, I'm not going to dish shortage house, by the way. I was up in. No, no, no. And you I'm, weren't. But you were. You were just. You were just flagging something up to me, yeah, and that yeah. was really important. And I thank you for it. Although, I was at White City House the other day, and that is lovely and multicultural. Now, it's it's yeah. it's a bit more. You know what I mean? But then, 
yeah, we evolved, don't we? That was 11 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now loads of young black kids are hanging out in White City House doing their work. It's fantastic, you know, so. Do you feel that this is a watershed moment? Because, and I don't know whether it's, and I'm always loath to use this term because perfect storm always implies that, you know, the word perfect implies it's a good thing. But, but it feels like all these things kind of did come together at the same time. With COVID, with lockdown, there was a lot of oppression, there was a lot of frustration. Um, there was a lot of people wanting to, their voices to be heard and probably struggling a lot, a lot of people struggling with mental health issues. The, yeah. the George Floyd thing was this massive global catalyst at a time when people were prepared and had to listen because we were at home, locked in and ready to absorb. So do you think that this will be the change that we need to see in the world? And do you think this will be lasting? I can honestly say the George Floyd moment alone was seismic. I think there was an outrage from any human being watching that. That was just a shock to a lot of people. It wasn't a shock to black people, especially in America. It was an absolute shock to a hell of a lot of people. The callousness, the, 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 just the... Like he's an animal. Not even you wouldn't do that to an animal, right? It was it was painful. I mean, I was screaming at my television when I saw that. I'm just like, you know, are you kidding me? You know that sort of thing, right? It wasn't in the middle of nowhere. Someone's, I mean, you know what I mean? Someone's filming it. Um, what happened after that was strange, but I felt powerful. The fact that we were in lockdown, we were told stay in, and these young people in America, black and white, went out and weren't having any more of this. We're just This is just too much. Yeah, they had COVID fever being locked down. They wanted to get out anyway, and then what they, they were pent up. But what, before that, Black Lives Matter was festering. It was up, it was like a roller coaster. You'd heard of it, You'd, you, you know, you weren't, you know, people weren't totally sure about its merits or what it means and people didn't really investigate it enough to find out and people were happy to say white lives matter, which of course white lives matter. We've always known white lives matter. We're in a white world in that way, you know, you know what I mean? And you know, people, I, I, it's so awful having to explain what, why the term black lives matter came up. Just it should be Black Lives Matter as well, just to explain to people who don't understand I do, it. I do think that there, is, there has been a problem with the politicisation. The Black Lives Matter is also yeah. an organisation which a lot of people yeah. aren't with. But it's also a statement, isn't it? You know, Black Lives Matter, yeah. they do. And I don't think, well, unless you're deeply racist, there's anyone that would disagree with that as a statement. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I, it doesn't mean you buy into the whole movement and all these no. other statements. But the core point is that black lives matter right we're human beings that's what it means we are also you can have a teacher saying we are also human beings please treat us like that you know that's you know that's what they mean it's catchy <laughs> it's quite catchy but what's happened since has been a bit a bit a bit it's gone a bit crazy in both directions you know it's it's you know that the the far right and people with right leanings a bit a very riled up, obviously. Um, the far left are jumping on board. You know, it's politicised totally. Um, those in charge, 
dare I say, of the countries involved at the moment, I'm not enamoured with at all. And that's, I'll leave it at that. I mean, they're, they're more divisive than cohesive. Is that the right word I should say? They're, they're, they're not the adhesive. They're more like, let's rip it open and tear it up. But it is a seismic moment. I think there's, there'll be a shift. I think there has been a shift. I don't think it's a solution. I don't think we're over any humps yet. We're nowhere near. We're at the foot of the mountain. And this has to be gradual, gradual process. It's just awareness. It's just awareness. I'm here. I'm talented. Please, you know, give me a fair crack. You know, give me a fair crack. I'm a human. I pay me taxes. I do this. I do that. Give me a fair crack. That's all. Just be, just treat me like you treat Natalie. That is it. That's all I'm asking. You know what I mean? And people will say, well, but you've done well, mate. Oh, you're all right, yeah. Um, yeah, 30 years. I've been working really, really hard. And, um, you know, if you want to find, and everybody I know that's been a success of any kind has got a very strong personality, a very single-minded, and will power through, you know, and make a difference. And not, you know, my generation certainly didn't sit around feeling entitled. Not me coming up, we were angry. There were riots where I grew up. There were... And listen, once I was going, are you, are you, you're looking at a good boy here, but I was walking out on the street and my mum called me back. Called me back. Banged the window when I was going down the road with my friends because we heard something was going on. And she said, where are you going? You come back here now. And I was like, oh, shame. And I was <laughs> walk back in, but I'm glad she did. But fast forward to the year 2020 and my nephew just had his 15-minute short story on ITV, the first of the four short stories to Black Lives Matter that he wrote uh, um, was on ITV at nine o'clock uh, a couple of nights ago. Wow. And so what's, what's it, how can we find it? What's it called? ITV, oh gosh, you're going to kill me. Ah. It's ITV, it was on yeah. ITV, nine o'clock, just gone. Um, I'll find out if it's, hang on one second, you might have to edit this because <laughs> it'll look really bad if I don't know. His name's Jerome Bucken Nelson. And he's done very well for himself. He's written for EastEnders, Hollyoaks, Emmerdale, everything. He's, he's just, he's great. And that's what it's about. Someone, a, a kid who's got a chance. He was doing politics and history, I believe, at uni. And he decided, I want to want to be a filmmaker. And now he's doing, he's doing fantastically well, under the radar, done his stuff. No nepotism, no uncle helping him. or He's just on merit. That's how it should always be. Some people don't like to hear that, but that's how it should be. So it should be. Yeah, he was, he, I'm really proud of him. Really proud. There you go. It was a 15-minute short story written by Jerome Buckham. Generational. Generational. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. Oh, Trevor, I could talk to you all night long. I tell you what. We've done already, Nats. <laughs> We've been chatting for an hour and a quarter. Wow. Wow. You've got to edit it. How long's your podcast? I don't want to edit it. I want all of it to go up. I love it. I love it so much. We've got loads more to catch up on, haven't we? Brilliant. You're brilliant. I'm I'm happy to, um, you know, I haven't spoken on Black Lives Matter anywhere because... um, Is there anything else that you want to say about it? um, No, not really. Um, I, I, I want to say, you know, my point is being there is... You know, people, look, I'm, I'm, in radio terms, I'm a household name in radio terms. I don't, I'm not the most famous black man in the country by a long, long chalk, you know. 
that's probably just Elba or something like that, you know, but um, I think that by being there, you make a change. You know, by, by doing you, you make a change, by, by changing, you know, I don't want to be just, I don't want to be one of the only ones in the house, letting the house, you know, let him in. We like him. You know, you, I just want people to give black people a fair crack of the whip. A fair, you know, look at their CV. Don't just look at their appearance. Don't just assume they're angry or they're this or the stereotypes. Just cut, let, that's fine. You know, I, I'll tell you one place I love going to. And I'm going to give this company a plug, not because I want you to buy their products. But I engage with people. When I go to the Apple store, they always have all these young people, black, white, green, yellow, pink, running around, and they're all so engaging. I don't know how they select their staff, but I always end up in huge conversations. It's one of my opportunities to talk to young people without, you know, for no reason at all. And I always end up talking to them. So what do you want to do? What do you want to do eventually? And they, you, you know what I mean? And they're able, because, because you need them. When you've, got, when you've got computer problems, or you've got, so you need these people. And they're there for you. And I always go the extra mile and just ask them stuff and talk to them. Yeah, so, yeah. like working there? Or are you just working there for a while? Uh, where, where do you want to go? It's like, well, you know, when you talk to a cabbie who always says, this isn't my job. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Get a cabbie goes, this isn't my job, you know. <laughs> they always go, I, or I used to be a graphic designer, just doing this, or I'm, I'm, I'm a student, or I'm studying, or I'm whatever. And I find, I love talking to people who are interesting. Treat everybody like that. Give them a crack. That's a really good point because you do need them in the Apple store. So you're all ears to them. That's what yeah. we be as Isn't a typical rule. So you're an Apple person as well, right? Yeah. So you've been in there and, you, and it's really strange. It's strange, isn't it? It's strange yeah. how you are, you need them and you hear them. And they're, sometimes they're some of the most interesting, sometimes they're not, but a lot of the time I find them the most interesting people. Yeah. It's like, go to Mackie D's if you get Mackie D's. And I always used to say to people, don't laugh at people who work at Mackie D's. They're working. That could be your boss one day. Yeah. That person could be your boss one day. You know, I like people who work, you know, and I always have a word, but I don't buy Mackie's much, so. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you wouldn't look that good at 57 if you did. Uh, well, ugh, maybe not. In lovely talking. You too, my darling. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you very much, Trevor Nelson. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat together. In fact, I could have talked to him for another two, three or four hours. Well, I say talked, I would have preferred just to listen because he's got so many amazing experiences and anecdotes that he shared throughout his time broadcasting. And it doesn't seem like there are many people on this planet he hasn't met or worked with at some stage in his career. And I also thought he was very fair and measured and calm about Black Lives Matter. Clearly very passionate about the progress that needs to be made, but good at opening up the conversation, which is obviously what we all need to do. So thank you so much for that. Honoured that you spoke for the first time about something that clearly means so much to you on In The Pink. So thank you for that. Okay, loads more great guests on the way and still the chance to win those Bose noise cancelling headphones. All you have to do is tag in a couple of mates onto my Instagram page, tell us which guest you've loved and why and add the hashtag Bose and we could be sending those headphones to you. Thank you so much for your company and your continued support and feedback. Remember to rate, review and subscribe and I'll see you very soon for another episode of In The Pink.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.